Let me tell you a story, podcast number 108. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We are delighted to have our friend Steve Bauer join us for this podcast. Steve is not only a good friend, he's a faithful listener to this podcast, which of course makes us doubly fond of him. He's going to read a fun short story for us in a few minutes, but before that, Steve Lyles will ask Steve Bauer some questions to help you get to know him a bit. So, sit back and enjoy. Steve, there are just too many Steves around here. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when you run out of names. (laughs) So... uh... Tell us, tell us how you got your start in flying. What's your, what's your history? Oh, it goes back to the third grade. When I was eight years old, I went on a field trip from school to Boise Airport and climbed up in a DC-3, my first venture into an airplane. I went right up to the cockpit, and there was an airline pilot up there kind of t- giving us a tour. And so I proceeded to ask him what each and every dial was for in there. Finally, my teacher came up and said, Steve, you've got to move back and let somebody else have a turn. But that was when I decided I was home. I knew what I wanted to do. So you were flying by, what, fifth grade? Or <laughs> Not quite. My first actual flight in an airplane was as a graduation present from high school. My parents paid to fly me down to Los Angeles to visit relatives and Disneyland and Catalina Island. Was that a one-way ticket? (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually managed to find my way home. (laughs) But to actually learn to fly took even longer. I started to learn while I was in the Air Force as an air traffic controller, and then that got interrupted, and I think it was three years after that that I was married, and uh, I was in my mid-20s, and uh, working as a TV repairman, and decided that uh, I'd better get after it if I was going to learn how to fly. So for years, it was just an avocation, just a hobby, and then gradually I started teaching, and then eventually uh, I was laid off from my IT job, information technology job, and went into full-time flying in 2004. 2004. And then since then, though, you've been, what, pretty much around the world, I think, or at least a good part of it, (laughs) always finding your way back home. So far. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've been to quite a few places. Kind of ramping back now, though. I'm just doing flight instruction now, and I'm home sleeping in my own bed every night which means a lot. Have you counted how many countries you've been in? As a charter pilot, uh, not that many. 
What kinds of planes have you flown? <laughs> Mostly Cessnas and Pipers with a few Beechcraft, Bonanzas, and uh, things like that. A uh, Pilatus PC-12 became my primary plane to fly back in 2006. And I flew those about 3,000 hours while I was a full-time charter pilot. Now I'm back to Cessnas and Pipers. I was never an airline pilot. Didn't want to be an airline pilot. Although, as a third grader, I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Steve. Let's, uh, let's hear your story. Okay. This is entitled, Las Mochas, Mexico, Out of My Comfort Zone. After 33 years of part-time flying, tens of thousands of dollars of flight training, earning my instrument, commercial, instructor, and ATP, that's Airline Transport Pilot Certificates and Ratings, and providing over 3,000 hours of instruction to dozens of fellow pilots, I finally land my dream job as a commercial charter pilot. Four months later, I nearly panic at my first international trip assignment. I've never flown outside the United States. I'm unsure how to satisfy both U.S. and Mexican customs requirements, and I don't have enough time to investigate and plan for the trip. With only 18 hours' notice, I'm to pick up three passengers at Palo Alto Airport in the San Francisco Bay Area and fly them a thousand miles to Los Mochis Airport, Mexico, for a four-day hunting and fishing trip. The fully loaded Pilatus PC-12 will need almost every inch of the short runway at Palo Alto for takeoff and at night. A quick phone call to my passengers solves this problem. They are willing to leave from San Jose, a nearby airport with much longer runways and the safety of being open and staffed 24 hours per day. My boss suggests I look at a binder that a former pilot saved from a Mexican charter he took two years prior. It contains much valuable advice, including contact information for a handler organization. I quickly call the company, and to my delight, the gentleman who answers my call offers to provide me with a short-notice Mexican landing permit, flight planning, weather information, and even discounted fuel at Las Mochis. Hoping to impress my new boss and co-workers, I proudly announce this breakthrough in the front office. But the reaction shocks me. You can't use them. We're still involved in litigation with them from the trip two years ago. Afraid that I might have inadvertently committed a firing offense, I try to explain to my boss, I'm sorry, but the handler is my only option for the short-notice Mexican landing permit we need. He sighs. Okay, then, you can get the permit from them. Encouraged and hopeful, I take a step forward and add, By the way, they offered me a deeply discounted price on fuel at Las Mochas if we buy it through them. It would save us hundreds of dollars. Is that okay, too? I hear a plane taking off from the runway behind me as my boss looks me straight in the eye for several seconds. He finally says, go ahead, but don't order anything else from them. I realize I'll be doing all the Mexico flight planning and weather analysis without the handler's help and fervently hope I can find the resources I'll need without jeopardizing the trip. A couple of hours later, the paperwork arrives on our fax machine and I hastily plan the trip. I'll leave Boise for San Jose at 3.30 a.m. in order to be positioned and ready for my passengers on time. The weather looks good, although I can find very little information about the Mexican portion of the trip, 
since I don't know how to retrieve Mexican weather observations and forecasts. So I might encounter adverse weather there and have to divert to an unknown and possibly illegal alternate airport without much warning, which makes me a little nervous. When I arrive in San Jose the next morning, it's still dark as I walk into the FBO. That's a fixed base operation. I'm on time and believe that I'm well prepared for the trip. But when the attractive young customer service representative learns my name, she cautions, your handler called and you are not permitted to take off until you contact him first. My pulse quickens. Wondering what new glitch now threatens my trip, I quickly call the number she shows me and while my stomach churns, I patiently ask the handler, what's the problem? I thought everything was in order and my passengers expect to leave very soon. You missed an item on page four of the fax forms we sent you yesterday, he replies, sounding annoyed. We need your credit card information and signature there, so we're sure that we'll be paid for our services. Realizing that this information is their hedge against our litigation, and that I must comply in order to continue the trip, I cooperate. And then, much to my surprise, and despite the temporary obstacle, my passengers and I load up the plane and depart right on time. Finally free from the bonds of earth with all its regulations, paperwork, and litigious atmosphere, I take delight in how nicely the PC-12 flies, and the beautiful sunrise, smooth air, and cloudless skies reassure me that all is right with the world. In two hours, we hum across the border into Mexico, a little ahead of time thanks to a gentle tailwind. Air traffic control is different in other countries, and this soon becomes apparent with the controller's thick accents and unfamiliar phrases, although they still speak in broken English to me. The majority of their conversations are in Spanish with their native pilots, and I'm un unable to determine what other traffic may be near me. In another hour, we descend to land at Las Mochas. Parking is interesting. Normally, I'm guided in taxiing to a place where I'll shut down the airplane and disembark, and then ground handlers tow the airplane to its parking spot. This marshaller, however, gestures for me to taxi my airplane backwards into the parking spot myself. Backing a PC-12 is possible with reverse thrust, but seldom attempted since the pilot can't see where he or she is going, and a sudden stop will result in the tail striking the ground and causing extensive damage to the plane. With the engine running, I wait unsuccessfully for another option. Finally, reluctantly, I rev the Pilatus up in reverse thrust and gingerly taxi backward until he signals for me to stop. Then I shut down the airplane and open the cabin door for my passengers to get out. We unload their considerable baggage, which I later learn includes a 100-pound cooler full of frozen beef steaks. I then straighten up the cabin and notice my passengers have used the lavatory en route. Knowing I shouldn't allow the contents to ferment and contaminate the cabin air during our four-day stay, I ask the marshaller if they can provide a lav service. The airport employees aren't equipped or trained for it so I have to learn on my own how to disconnect and remove the honeypot for emptying and cleaning. They only speak Spanish, and I only speak English, but with an impromptu game of charades, we communicate where to empty and clean it up. First, I pretend to invert the container and wave my arm to indicate I need to know where to dump it. The marshaller walks with me to a drain grate in front of the fire station, 
and points from the honeypot to the grate. I empty the pot, trying to minimize any splashing. Next, I try to simulate rinsing out the pot with a hose, and he shows me a nearby faucet I can use. When I'm finally satisfied the pot is clean, although I wonder if the drain grate is really the right place to dump it, I put the lav back together in the plane again. My passengers are long gone by now. The airport commandant walks up, glares at me, and asks in a gruff voice, You done yet? Follow me. We walk over to the airport office where he tries to explain to me in his limited English that I did not provide him with the proper paperwork. Eventually, I learn that his faxed copy of my pilot's license is illegible. He borrows my license to make a new copy and then sends me to the immigration officer. We fill out more paperwork and I'm forwarded to yet another small office where a couple of husky gentlemen point to a calculator which shows 1200 on its display. I'd obtained $1,200 in $100 bills to pay for fuel and expenses during the trip, and my heart sinks as I perceive that they are going to take it all before I even leave the airport or can buy fuel for the return flight. The alarm must show on my face, for they quickly say, PESOS! I have no idea what the exchange rate is between dollars and pesos, and it seems like a bad idea to pull a roll of $100 bills out of my pocket. I quietly unroll one $100 bill in my pocket and pull it out for the officers. Okay, they say, you are free to go. But where? A short, young Mexican man approaches me next and in fragmented English asks me to get my bag and follow him. We walk over to a brand new Suburban and he gestures for me to get in the right seat. The other seats are already occupied by what appears to be American tourists. As soon as I sit down and buckle up, the driver takes off, heading north out of town. I turn toward the driver and ask, Do you speak English? No. After a pause, he asks, Habla espanol? No. <laughs> and so we travel on our way, silently. Sometime later, on a narrow and hilly two-lane highway, we follow a rickety flatbed truck carrying a large brown horse standing on its bed with its head resting on the top of the cab. The car ahead of the horse-laden truck is going slower than road conditions warrant, and finally the truck pulls out to pass while going up a small hill. Sure enough, at that moment, an oncoming car pops over the top of the hill and a collision seems unavoidable. The truck driver slams on his brakes and somehow manages to squeeze back into his lane without crashing or losing his horse. My driver and I glance at each other and simultaneously utter, Whoa! And we understand each other. <laughs> About 25 miles north of Las Mochas, our suburban arrives in the little town of El Fuerte. My passengers are staying at the Hidalgo Hunting Lodge and have arranged for me to stay there too. The driver can't find the lodge at first, and after driving around the narrow dirt streets for a few minutes, he stops to ask for directions. The lodge turns out to be right in the middle of town, a mission-style white stucco building with painted wood trim and a portico with a thatched roof. Its paved courtyard is large enough for them to park their vehicles inside and is surrounded by a six-foot wall with a drive-through opening to the trashy dirt street in front. We are shown to our rooms, which have worn tile floors, rickety three-foot-wide beds, and no luxuries such as a TV, telephone, or even hot water. 
As I enter my room with my suitcase and close the door, I discover that the door lock and knob don't work either. Looking out the room's window, I see an open porch area with rustic log tables and chairs for the guests behind the lodge. A 10-foot grassy area beyond that, and the 100-foot wide and muddy El Fuerte River even further out. A little later, we're invited to the central dining room for a sumptuous, traditional Mexican dinner, including tacos, tamales, and enchiladas. Exhausted and full, I return to my room and fall fast asleep. At 4.30 the next morning, I'm startled awake by loud banging on my door. A voice outside cries, Come on, get up! It's time to get going! I stagger to the non-functioning doorknob and pull the door open to see why I need to evacuate my room. What's the matter? I ask groggily. You get dressed and come eat, says the young Mexican guide. We must leave early to hunt and fish before it gets too hot. I'm just a pilot, I reply, and I'm not going hunting or fishing. Oh, sorry, he says and moves on to the next room. I crawl back into bed for a few more Z's. When I get up later, I discover that the lodge is almost vacant, with only a couple of employees working here and there. They prepare me a nice breakfast of eggs, bacon, coffee, and orange juice. And I try to figure out how I am going to spend the next three days while my passengers hunt doves and catch fish. My cell phone works, and I want to call home and keep getting updates to the weather, but my employer has warned me about the expensive Mexican cell phone rates and suggested I might not be reimbursed for an excessive phone bill from the trip. In a day or two, I finish the reading material I've brought along and am getting very bored. During the afternoons, the employees keep bringing full pitchers of a delicious icy cold drink to the shaded patio where I've decided to hang out. It's definitely not lemonade, and after a couple glasses, I begin to wonder if I can fly without a plane. I've discovered margaritas. <laughs> About mid-afternoon each day, my passengers and the other guests return, and the place bustles with activity and conversation as the lodge employees keep the margaritas coming and work on preparing delicious dinners. Sometimes they roast fresh dove breasts on skewers along with slices of onion, bell peppers, and pineapple. One night we're treated to barbecued steaks, the ones we had brought from San Jose to celebrate a passenger's birthday. The countdown continues toward the day of our return flight. I call home the evening before our last full day in El Fuerte and discuss the situation with my wife. Honey, I say, I'd love to join my passengers hunting or fishing here, but I heard it costs $400 a day, and we just don't have the money. She responds, this is really a unique opportunity. I don't think you should worry about the money. Just go ahead and enjoy the activities. Bolstered by her encouragement, I go looking for the lodge manager to tell him I want to be included in the fishing trip the next day. We aren't fishing tomorrow, he says. The river is flowing too high and muddy, and no one is catching fish. But you are welcome to hunt doves with us. But I didn't bring a shotgun, and I don't have any hunting clothes with me, I reply. Oh, that's okay. We'll loan you a gun, and you're fine wearing whatever clothes you've got. Early the next morning, we eat breakfast and load up on a bus to go to the dove hunting fields. On the way, the lodge manager introduces me to our team of what he calls bird boys, actually very experienced hunting guides, and one of them asks me if I've ever shot a dove before. When I say no, he tells me they have a tradition that a new hunter 
must eat the heart of his first dove raw for luck. Uh-oh, I think, dreading the thought and hoping the idea gets dropped. Soon we arrive at the fields and each bird boy pairs up with a guest to start hunting. As my bird boy, Ernesto, and I walk along the boundary between a stubble field and a stand of brushy trees, a couple of small gray pigeon-like birds suddenly fly by us, about 50 feet away and going 100 miles an hour. There, shoot, Ernesto urges excitedly, and I raise my gun and fire three quick shots in succession, missing all three times and nearly falling over backwards from the recoil. Ernesto just happens to have his shoulder positioned perfectly to steady me and coaches me on leading the bird's path so they will fly into the pellets. More birds fly by, and time after time I shoot and miss. Finally, one of my shots finds its target, and my first dove flutters to the ground among the brush and trees. I'm elated, but worried that we'll never find the bird. Ernesto says he will retrieve it and that I should keep hunting. Two minutes later, he returns with the dove. Three boxes of shells, and seven doves later, the word gets around that it's time to call it a day. Back at the bus, all the doves are collected and counted, and we board the bus to go back to the lodge. On the way, we stop briefly to give a few of our doves to the landowners who let us hunt their fields, but we're still left with about 150 of them. Then we stop again, unexpectedly, near a dry creek bed, and are told to get out and walk around. The bird boys take the bags of doves a ways down the creek bed and proceed to extract their breast meat from their bodies with bare hands, dropping the rest of the carcasses on the ground. A few minutes later, three of them approach me, grinning impishly. These your first hunt, no? Yes, I confirm hesitantly. One of them holds up an inch-long item, which looks like a bloody walnut, and says, This is your dove's heart. You eat, no? As a former farm boy, I realize they are messing with me. That's not a heart. That's a gizzard, I retort. The bird boys burst into laughter and chatter to each other in Spanish as they walk away. I imagine they're saying something like, Maybe he's not as dumb as he looks. Within a minute, they return, this time holding a much smaller raw dove heart for me to eat. Gulping, I take it and swallow it whole. Cheering and laughing, the bird boys congratulate me with a pat on my back and exclaim, You now, good man, have two hearts. Back on the bus, we continue to the hunting lodge for our last dinner together and for me to begin planning our return flight to California. I tell the lodge employees I need to return to the airport at least two hours before our departure time, and one of them offers to drive me down in his pickup truck early the next morning. We load up and leave El Fuerte at sunrise, with me squeezed between two young lodge employees on the narrow seat of their compact pickup, while my passengers enjoy sleeping in and having a leisurely breakfast before they head back in a nice suburban. About halfway to Las Mochas, we pass through a small village, and suddenly I hear a siren. Looking back, I see a police car zooming toward us with his emergency lights flashing. My driver pulls over, and the officer walks up to his door. Rapid Spanish conversation ensues, followed by laughter, while I wonder silently if this is where I'm finally going to be hauled into a Mexican jail indefinitely. Then the officer returns to his car, and we resume our drive toward Las Mochas. My driver explains to me in broken English that the officer is a good friend of his and was just saying hi to him. <laughs> Relieved, I start to breathe normally again, 
and my heart rate returns to normal. Arriving at the airport, I walk to the airport office to seek help arranging for departure. To my surprise, the airport commandant greets me with a cheery, Good morning, senor. Can you help me file a flight plan, I ask timidly. Si, senor, he replies. Reaching behind the counter, he pulls out a pad of Mexican flight plan forms and lays one in front of me. Unfortunately for me, the instructions are all in Spanish. Patiently, the commandant explains to me in his limited English what goes in each of the boxes and finally signs the form when he is satisfied with my work. Then I walk out to the Pilatus to prepare it for our flight home. A fuel truck drives up to the plane and the driver proceeds to load the 800 liters of jet fuel I requested into the wing tanks. When the fueling is finished, the driver approaches me and asks, how you pay for fuel? I already paid my handler for the fuel, I replied. Annoyed, the driver continues, I know receive payment, how you gonna pay? Since my handler is nowhere to be seen, I call the handler's company phone number to ask them to resolve the situation for me. But instead of a person answering their phone, my call goes directly to a fax machine, and I get an earful of whistles and pops as it tries to sync up with my phone. The driver paces and stares at me impatiently as he waits to be paid. I find a contract fuel credit card in the plane and offer it to him. He takes it and runs the transaction on his portable credit card machine. I breathe a sigh of relief, although I know I'll have trouble with the double payment for the fuel expense after the trip is over. A minute later, the driver returns and angrily states, Your card is expired. How you pay for fuel now? Sure enough, the expiration date on the contract fuel card has passed. Embarrassed, I pull my personal credit card out of my wallet and offer it to him. He runs it through his machine and finally is satisfied that I've paid for my fuel. I'm so relieved. I hardly care that I may end up paying for the fuel out of my own pocket if my employer won't reimburse me for it. An hour later, my passengers show up and we load up and take off for the United States and home. We land briefly at Calexico on the U.S. border and clear customs by presenting our APIS forms and general declaration paperwork. A few minutes later, we board the plane again and take off for San Jose, arriving there about sunset. My weary passengers disembark, quietly help me unload their baggage, and head for their home. I purchase enough additional fuel to continue to Boise and head off into the darkening sky again. An hour and a half later, a thin horizontal line representing the lights of Treasure Valley slowly emerges from the blackness. A few minutes later, I land, taxi to the ramp, and shut down the airplane. Listening to the slowing whine of the engine spooling down, I fill out the flight log and then take my time straightening up the cabin one last time before walking to my car with a suitcase full of dirty clothes. Reminiscing about all the unexpected problems and triumphs, as well as the lessons I've learned in this, my first international charter flight, I think to myself, how true it is, there's no place like home. Thanks, Steve, and you did a great job reading that, too. Hey, um, you told me once about, uh, you told me a story about a famous lawyer. <laughs> would you uh, would you tell everybody that? Sure. One of the airplanes that uh, my company managed was the company plane for Spence Law Firm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. 
And Jerry Spence is the um, founder of that, that law firm. So anyway, my first assignment to go over there and fly him and his wife to California. I came over there and when he got to the airplane, he looked at me and he said, have we met? And I said, no, I'm, I'm a new pilot at the company. And he looked at me and he said, are you an excellent pilot? And I didn't want to toot my horn too much, I guess. So I said, I'm a very good pilot. And he said, that's not what I asked you. I said, he said, I asked you, are you an excellent pilot? And I repeated, I said, well, I, I've got the same experience and the same training as all the pilots at Western, and I'm a very good pilot. And he just stared at me, and I thought for a minute, I think he's going to refuse to fly with me. And finally, in desperation, I looked at him and I said, look, sir, I've got as much at stake as you do on this flight. And he looked at me for a second and then just burst out laughing. And we were good friends after that. <laughs> and he did get on the airplane and we flew to California <laughs> safely. <laughs> Steve, thanks for coming and sharing your story. That was great. I sure enjoyed it. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.